This podcast is brought to you by GovInfoSecurity.com, the leading online publication for risk management and security professionals within federal, state, and local government agencies. Hello, I'm Eric Chabro of GovInfoSecurity.com, and I'm pleased to be speaking with Peter Summer. Professor Summer is visiting professor at the London School of Economics Information Systems and Innovation Group, along with Ian Brown of Oxford University's Internet Institute, Professor wrote a paper entitled Reducing Systemic Cybersecurity Risk for the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. The OECD is a form of 34 nations that promotes democracy and market economy. Welcome, Peter. Good. Well, I suppose I ought to say uh, good morning. I think it's morning for both of us, isn't it, I guess so, at least when we're recording this. In the paper, you write that an analysis of cybersecurity issues has been weakened by the lack of agreement on terminology and the use of exaggerated language. How so? I think we need to step back a little bit. Um, Our audience, when you write for the OECD, is policymakers in government. The overall study we've been commissioned to carry out is part of a broader study into what they call future global risks. Other future global risks could obviously be yet another financial catastrophe, could be a very, very large um, pandemic, could be a return of the volcanic ash stuff that we had earlier in the year, could be rather like the oil spill that we had in the Gulf. So the question we were asked was, how do we handle cyber threats? How do they fit into that overall mix? Which of the various scare scenarios that people talk about would actually materialize as a true global threat as opposed to something which causes distress to a minority of people. As we got into the work, although we were sort of aware of it before, looking at lots of other people's surveys, began to see um, lots of different ways in which the word cyber war or cyber attack were being used. And in some cases, uh, to be quite brutal about it, people were sort of upping the ante in order to get a bit of press attention. We rather took the view that these cyber threats, even if they don't amount to a global catastrophe, are really serious. It's important that we analyze them properly. And in order to do so, we have to be fairly sort of sober about what we do. If we only use the word cyber war, it really ought to have some vague equivalence to what we normally use the word war for. Is a cyber war going to be like what is going on at the moment in Afghanistan? And when we talk about cyber attack, Do we mean something which is really going to be quite devastating or is it going to be an attempt at posting a virus uh, into our emails, which our routine antivirus software picks up? Now, unless we're reasonably clear about what we're measuring, then um, essentially it's very, very difficult to decide um, how to overcome it, how much money to spend, what sort of policies to emerge. You identified, if I read your paper correctly, two major areas where there could be some kind of large-scale disruption. One is the border gateway protocol that determines routing between internet service providers and a very large-scale solar flare that could physically destroy key communication components. And that has the ability, as you call it, for a global shock. Uh, What do you mean by global shock? And should governments spend limited resources to protect and recover from these single events? Well... Two things to say. First of all, what is meant by a global shock is an event which maybe starts off fairly local, but then cascades and affects other types of activity. 
to illustrate the point, let's move away specifically from the cyber domain and look at what happens in the pandemic. Now, then, initially, when you talk to people about pandemics, you think, oh, lots of people will get sick. Isn't that rather unfortunate? But what happens after a bit when enough people are sick simultaneously is that there aren't enough uh, people to keep the essential fabric of society going. There aren't enough people to keep the retail going, enough people to staff the hospitals, enough people um, to keep public transport uh, going. And one of the things that happens, particularly in the pandemic, is that at one, some point the authorities say, gosh, um, children seem to be particularly vulnerable to this. They are a vector for the distribution of this particular pandemic. Let's close down the schools and tell the children to go home. But of course, these days you have lots of working mothers. So immediately those working mothers, even if they are not sick themselves, suddenly cease to be available to keep the fabric of society going. That's an example of a cascade. Another example of a cascade people will know about when you get an electric outage and the electric outage isn't limited. The grid, instead of just closing down a small part, suddenly says, oh, look, there are all these other resources that might be available to us elsewhere in the country, we'll grab those. And in a classic electric grid cascade, what happens is a whole series of individual uh, systems becomes overloaded and collapses. What we're really looking at is what is the prospect for a cyber event to create that. And as you say, we've identified two that taken by themselves might have that um, possibility. We also think they're really relatively rare. And uh, what we're also trying to do in the report is to give people a way of evaluating these various threats. You know, what are the triggering events? What is the possibility that the event can't be contained, that it is going to cascade? What are the factors that might slow the thing down? What are the factors that might uh, make it worse? And when you start doing that, you have a much better hang, a much better hold on uh, the sort of problems that you really need to worry about. And that goes back to trying to remove the hysteria out of it and say, well, look, some of these scare stories we don't need to worry about quite so much because they're not truly global or they might have a rather limited effect. Some of the other things taken by themselves or in combination with other events are things that we need to worry about. So it's trying to have a more sophisticated form of um, threat analysis. So in other words, governments shouldn't be overly concerned about these uh, global shock type of incidents and should concentrate on more things that they have uh, better control over. It's like saying, what is the worst thing that could happen in the United States? A meteorite could uh, fall onto a center of population and kill lots and lots of people. And that would uh, also have a cascading effect, depending on which center of population they fall. And you then say, well, what is the likelihood of that happening? It's not all that great. OK, we don't need to do anything about anything. Obviously, there are a whole lot of other events which are much more likely to happen. And you really need to have those in your uh, civil contingencies agenda as well. Civil contingency is the phrase we use here in the United Kingdom to cope with these or deal with these situations which are uh, affect the population as a whole and for which you would like a government somehow spontaneously to have a plan to mitigate the effects and enable you to recover. You and many others suggest the term cyber war, at least how it's often used as a misnomer or overused or not properly used, and that war-like cyber weaponry would be used in combination with conventional kinetic armaments. Uh, to quote the report, there is no strategic reason why any aggressor would limit themselves to only one class of weaponry. 
That said, Israel is long to believe to have considered bombing Iranian nuclear facilities to prevent it from building nuclear weapons. But the consequences of such an airstrike could initiate a real war. Instead, if speculation is true, Israel, perhaps with the backing of the United States, attacked the Iranian facility, the Stuxnet worm, to, to disable nuclear centrifuges. Why wouldn't this be an example of a cyber war without the use of conventional weaponry? What do you mean by a cyber war? What we have said was, if you're going to use the word war, it really ought to have the qualities of a full-scale war. Otherwise, it's some sort of skirmish or it is covert action of various sorts. All of these things potentially can exist. We think that if you're talking about a pure cyber war, in other words, something with the effect of what's going on in Afghanistan or what went, in the, went on in the Balkans or uh, so on and so forth, and is conducted purely from one computer attacking other computers, we think that sort of exercise and event is really pretty unlikely. What we think, both in terms of an out right war, but also in terms of covert activity or the skirmishes leading up to war, we are seeing more and more use of cyber weaponry. And there may be all sorts of good justifications for it. So in relation to Stuxnet, which is, I guess, what you're referring to in relation to the alleged attack on, on Iranian centrifuges, apparently by Israel and the United States, that's an example of sophisticated covert action. And you know, there's probably a pretty good justification for it. You've used a, um, a method, apparently highly successful, though the Iranians inevitably say it wasn't, but that has uh, slowed down the point at which a kinetic or conventional war might come along. Cyber weapons and conventional weapons are likely, in fact, already are being used alongside each other. And that's probably a rather better analysis and examination or a prediction about the future rather than the, what we were characterizing as the pure cyber war. In other words, the only type of weaponry is from one computer attacking other computers. To me, it seems that what allegedly occurred would have the same results of a bombing. Yes, and arguably with rather more precision. So, you know, there are good features weaponry in some way or another. I mean, people sort of assume that cyber weapons are totally bad. Once you get over the idea that we don't have permanent world peace and people may need to attack each other in particular circumstances when they feel it is justified, then there may be rather a lot of good things to say about cyber weapons. The paper suggests that government outsourcing critical computer services such as cloud computings as a means of driving efficiencies you know, to save money create security problems in the form of lost confidentiality if authentication is not robust and loss of service if internet connectivity is unavailable or the supplier is in financial difficulties. How serious of a problem is this and what should governments or any other kind of organization do? Our problem is we really don't know because quite a lot of the outsourcing contracts are confidential. We don't know what the detail is. So um, in addition to all the problems you're talking about is it may well be that something goes wrong 
and the outsourcing company goes back to its contract and says, well, all we ever agreed to do was to keep the service going. We're really, really sorry that things didn't work out. Let's see, we were out of function for three days. Annual contract with you obviously covers 365 days. So we will cheerfully give you back over 365 worth of your contract money back. And we promise not to do it again. Of course, that may not be anywhere near enough. And particularly at the moment when governments of all sorts are incredibly short of funds and they're under huge pressure from the from their citizens to keep taxes as low as possible, the great temptation is to go for these initially very attractive outsourcing and cloud computing contracts and not really think through how much protection they're getting from them. I don't have any sort of solution other than to do what we've done, write a report alerting governments to think very carefully about what it is they want from their outsourcing contract and how they're going to protect themselves if a contract fails. So the solution isn't necessarily to avoid cloud computing services? Not necessarily. It is look very carefully at the nature of the contract. I mean, it's, it's inevitable that someone who supplies a contract is going to want to, pretty crudely, extract the maximum revenue from you for the minimum real commitment. And simply saying that uh, we will compensate you for the uh, time that we weren't able to offer service, but only to the level of the value of the overall contract as opposed to the consequential loss. That's normally what you see in these contracts. Just so I don't know the contracts between uh, government and the outsourcers, but I've looked at other outsourcing contracts, and that's very often a big weakness. What you actually want is compensation for the consequential loss, or you need to think of some other way in which you are going to protect yourself for the time at which the service is not available. Thanks, Peter. Okay. I've been speaking with Peter Summer of the London School of Economics, Information Systems and Innovation Group. I'm Eric Chabro of GovInfoSecurity.com and Information Security Media Group. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been brought to you by GovInfoSecurity.com. For more interviews, breaking news, research, and educational webinars, please visit www.GovInfoSecurity.com.